Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and as I've been joking lately, I'm coming to you live from Macquarie, but actually I'm coming to you live from my house. We just got out of lockdown here in sunny Sydney, just in time for the summer. Um, And I'm here today with uh, two professors who wrote just a, a great book about fantasy sports, these two professors are Rebecca Kassane, Professor of Sociology at Lafayette College, and Sarah Winslow, Professor of Sociology at Clemson University. And their book is Whose Game, Gender and Power in Fantasy Sports, out from Temple University Press in 2020. So I, I have to tell you both, I just love this book. Um, I've played fantasy for a long time myself, and I recognized a lot of things when reading this book um, and recognized a a bit of myself and a bit of the fantasy sports universe. It made me think kind of deeply about um, some of the layers of power, especially gendered power that I hadn't thought about um, in as much depth as maybe I should have. And so I want to encourage everyone to pick pick up this book and check it out if you play fantasy sports. And I'd like to start out by asking you all how you developed this project? How'd you get into researching about fantasy sports? Okay, so uh, first of all, thanks for having us. Um, Sarah and I are always really happy and excited to talk about this book, which was a labor of love over several years um, that we worked on together. Um, So I guess like how it started. um, So I've always been a huge sports fan. um, And so I played sports growing up. I am a... um, have always lived in the general Philadelphia area. And so I've always been a Philly sports fan, which has a certain reputation on its own. Um, And uh, so I've always liked sports, but in terms of my um, academic research, I've always actually focused on on very different issues. Um, So I'm I, most of my research is on issues related to women and poverty. And so 
Um, a lot of that's been about how they use social service organizations, how they navigate welfare programs and policies, how they navigate poor neighborhoods, things like that. Um, and so my research has always been in kind of um, the area of social inequality and focused really on class. Um, what happened is I started playing fantasy sports myself. Um, and I, you know, because of my sports fandom in general, I, I found that as I was playing fantasy sports, it was kind of a strange experience for me, like in terms of what it did to like, you know, watching a regular game um, that I had done over and over again, what that experience was like as a fantasy sports player and a traditional fan, um, that became interesting to me. And so I actually started to think, well, maybe I should do a study on this. Um, as a sociologist, we're always interested in looking at everyday phenomenon from a different perspective and, and trying to look at kind of these um, larger kind of structural issues that might be at play um, in everyday um, activities. And so I was like, okay, well, why don't I, I'll do a study on fantasy sports is basically what happened. Um, and it will be something different that I'll do. And, um, and then I'll go back to my other research that I've typically done. And so I was kind of interested in, you know, whether my experience as um, both as a woman and as a fantasy sports player, whether it was more generalizable, I guess, to other um, individuals. So I um, launched a study. So I, um, I launched the study kind of that started with a, a survey and doing interviews with fantasy sports players. And I realized quickly that I that this was a bigger project than I think I initially thought. I thought this was just a little side thing I would do. Um, and But then I realized that this was a much bigger project and I really wanted to get um, help um, um, in essence um, from somebody else who would really um, be able to inform a lot of the gendered arguments we were making. Um, and that also could provide a perspective that was um, a little bit more of an outsider's perspective since I was so enmeshed in fantasy sports. Um, and so Sarah and I have been friends since graduate school. We went to the University of Pennsylvania together um, and she's one of my best friends. And I was kind of thinking this would be a fun project to do with her. So I asked Sarah to join this project and she can speak to why she agreed to this crazy idea to, to um, get involved in it. But thankfully she said yes. Um, and so she was able to help with a lot of kind of the big picture gender framing and the um, kind of the arguments, um, the statistics, because I didn't want to do anything with statistics ever again since graduate school. So Sarah was the, the stats queen on that. Um, and also was really gave a very good critical eye to um, ways, things that I was missing because I was too close to the subject matter. Right. Um, and so she was really helpful with that. But I don't know, Sarah, do you want to talk about why you even agreed to do this study with me? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I distinctly remember uh, being in my office one day and, and getting this email from Rebecca uh, sort of saying what she just alluded to, which was, you know, I've been doing this study and I started with a survey and I was really interested in the last question on the survey the most, which was, can I contact you for an interview? Um, and it turns out I have all this data uh, that I assume is really rich because of what I'm hearing in some of these interviews. And uh, as she noted, you know, I don't want to do the stats was basically what she said. Um, I haven't done that since graduate school. That's very fair. And, you know, um, do you want to sign on? Do you want to do this? And, you know, there's, uh, here's also where I'll say that, you know, my expertise is in the sociology of gender. Um, and while I had exclusively, I would say, or, or mostly applied that to understandings of, 
family, uh, how gender operates in families and how it operates in the labor market. Um, this was another opportunity for me to kind of think about how gender operates in a different institution that I had considered before. Um, so I think that was part of the draw. Uh, I'm always interested in puzzles, right? What's missing from the research. So that's intriguing as a scholar. Um, and then it was this really neat opportunity. I think for both of us, it was the kind of project you can only work on after you get tenure, really this, <laughs> this fun thing that's kind of outside your research area. And that'll be really neat to, to work with, um, one of your closest friends, uh, and, I don't know. And maybe I was having a weak moment. Who knows? Um, but uh, so I said yes. And, um, and and so we kind of started started working. It was, it was a really long road, um, but it was a lot of fun as well. And, and as somebody who, as Rebecca mentioned, does not play fantasy sports, but is a sports fan, um, it it was, I think, helpful for us both to play those ideas off one another, right? She would write something and I would say, this makes no sense to me because I don't live in this world. We've got to write ourselves out of that and explain it a bit more. Um, while also being accessible to the many people we know who are reading this book who are deeply enmeshed in fam fantasy sports. Um, so I think our, the balance of our two perspectives there made the book stronger. Yeah, I, um, I guess I could only come to it from the perspective of somebody who's played fantasy sports before, though I would certainly maybe feel, maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being hopeful, but uh, I would probably say I line up more on the limited than the hardcore in terms of your, your categorizations. <laughs> um, but but I, I'm struck by one of the things you said, Sarah, which is that this is the kind of book you can do after you get tenure because, hey, this is about something that's interesting. And I think this is something that sports people work on sports get all the time. Like, aren't you just studying like a silly pastime? And maybe people who study, you know, the physical sporting practices out in the world, you know, who struggled and who fought to get their work recognized in academia now can say, oh, well, everyone sees sports uh, as as a as a real um, area of study. But fantasy sports is kind of another layer of that. But your book actually, I think, does a lot to show how these are that by looking at fantasy sports, you can understand a lot about the way in which gender and social class work. So I'm wondering if you can kind of give us uh, a little bit about how you started to how you recognize probably immediately, but how you recognize that and then how you started to pull apart those pieces, like just a little bit of the, the background, I guess. Um, yeah, so I think that the fact that both Sarah and I are, again, are social inequality scholars, like I've, as I mentioned before, I've focused much more on class, um, and Sarah's focused much more on gender in our previous research. So while I, I don't think I went into the projects thinking this is going to be a, 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 a project that's about gender and class and, and fantasy sports. I was just kind of interested in seeing what um, individual uh, participants in fantasy sports, um, what they would say about their experiences um, playing and, and then teasing out that there might be subgroup differences or things like that. Um, and, and to be honest, I wasn't really aware when I started the project about how um, in general, the demographics of fantasy sports players um, 
are such that they're a rather privileged group. Um, most players are white. Most um, players are middle, upper class. Um, most players are men, right? Um, and so I don't think I knew those the, those demographics when I started the project um, precisely, but then I, as I was reading people, what people were talking about and, and looked at kind of the social location of those individuals, that became clearer to me as I was going along. Um, and so I think that the kind of, the fact that Sarah and I both have the, again, this gender and class kind of um, background in terms of our own research, it, it obviously came with us into the project that framed how we were, um, you know, gave us the ability to be able to see these trends and, and patterns in the data. Um, and, you know, the other really good thing that happened, um, and again, Sarah alluded to this when she was discussing about her own background and kind of work and family, is that it wasn't just that we were able to say, okay, this is about gender and class and sports. Um, we were able to kind of connect that in ways to talk about, well, let's think about how fantasy sports connect to workplaces and and the types of occupations that um, middle and upper class people hold in their professions. Um, or let's think about how this connects to families and assumptions about women um, and kind of their devotion to their households and household labor and how that might impact whether or not they're seen as um, suitable um, players in fantasy sports or those sorts of things. So I think that we were, because of our, because both, neither of us were centered in kind of the sports literature and research when we started the product, it helped us make sure that the project has connections beyond sports and beyond um, uh, just fantasy sports. Um, so I, I don't know if that gets at what you're kind of asking it, but I think that was kind of part of what we were trying to do is kind of and, and I think you're totally right what you mentioned about how um, research on sports gets um, gets marginalized in so many ways in sociology. It gets seen as something that's not important or it's it's not serious, you know. Um, and so um, that was certainly another you know thing that when we did this project, it's like kind of really demonstrating about how important this sort of stuff is, even if it looks like a, a, a silly little pastime that people are doing in their free time. That it has larger implications for not just within sports, but beyond sports too. And if, if I can just um, jump in to, to piggyback a, a bit on that, what, what I found compelling about this uh, is that, um, you know, there's sort of a paradox here. When I mentioned, I always liked those interesting puzzles um, in that you know, we think about sports as this highly gendered institution, institution rather, um, as someone who studies families, right? We think about that. What I found intriguing about fantasy sports in particular was that there were these opportunities where possibly things could be different, right? Um, a lot of the notion of why, uh, quote unquote, real, if, if you could see me, you'd see the air quotes, real sports, right? Our gender is, is predicated on these ideas of, you know, um, biological ideas about male and female bodies being different. Um, and that was absent here. Uh, theoretically, men and women can play together. Uh, they could potentially be anonymous to one another. Um, and so I was particularly interested in whether the gender dynamics that we see in all these other institutional realms um, play out or perhaps transformed in that virtual space. So that was um, a particularly interesting way of thinking about what might otherwise be seen as, you know, this hobby that people engage in. Um, 
and and whether some of the patterns we see in larger institutions or in other spaces where there's possibility for transformation, right? Do these things match up? Um, and then also, as Rebecca notes, the way in which it has the implications for all the other realms of our lives. And here for me was where my work as someone who studies how people use their time uh, became really intriguing to weave in. Um, you know, this is something that takes time and how do people accommodate that and how do particular characteristics, you know, the jobs we're in, uh, men's and women's uh, typical responsibilities and families, how do they facilitate or impede the ability to engage in fantasy sports? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I want us to get it to, I want I'm trying to generally follow the line of the book and I, I want us to have time at the end to talk about, you know, going overboard and some of the negative impacts. But I do, I do have to say, when I read some of the amounts of hours people spend on fantasy, <laughs> my mind was just blown. Because <laughs> I, I was like, oh, if I spend more than 20 minutes looking at this, you know, 20 minutes a week or something, I'm like, that's too much for me. <laughs> Because I have so much other stuff on, sometimes I feel like, and to read that some people spent, I think one of your one of your uh, interviewees spent twenty hours a week on fantasy, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was pretty surprising, you know. The, the, you know, certainly there's a big range, um, but yeah, there some of these hardcore players are spending a lot of time um, weekly on this, and and I should note that we. Over and over again in the interviews, what we hear is people, when they say it out loud, how much time they're, they're spending, there's this kind of self-reflection like, oh, man, like, I can't believe I'm, I'm admitting this and I'm embarrassed to say that I'm spending this much time. So there was some reflection on the part of a lot of the respondents who had a lot of time, they were investing a lot of time about well, what am I doing? You know, um, I actually kind of wonder after the interview, if they went home and were like, maybe I need to cut back. You know, this seems to be a problem. <laughs> Certainly some of them, it sounded to me like they needed to cut back, but that, I mean, that, that felt like a judgment on my part, I guess. I, I wonder, I mean, both of you have mentioned already the kind of uh, data that you use and in, in your first chapter, you, uh, well, the first uh, body chapter, it's all a game you kind of trace out some of the differences between traditional sports fandom and fantasy sports. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you got data on fantasy sports and the people that are playing them and kind of how they might differ from uh, traditional sports fans or even athletes or people competing in sports. Um, Yeah, sure. You know, so, if, in terms of what the what the data are for the project, so it's a multi-method project, a mixed multi-method project. So um, it included both quantitative and qualitative data. Um, in all, the the book project um, kind of utilizes in in different ways four different sets of data. Um, and so, you know, I guess the first thing I should mention is we focused on people playing in traditional fantasy sports leagues. So we were um, at, at the time of the data collection, that was the um, predominant um, group of fantasy sports players. So traditional um, fantasy sports leagues are those that are um, engaged in with a group of other people for an entire sports season playing against each other, right? So they'll have a league um, of, could be total strangers, but um, it, typically in our um, samples, it was um, people playing with people they knew or people they knew um, tangentially. Like, so you'd be like, um, 
some playing with your brother and then his your brother's friends right so they're kind of connected to somebody and they you know play over the whole season in a particular sport so the entire kind of nfl season or the um, um nhl season at mlb or whatever and so that's who we focus on. So we weren't focusing on daily fantasy sports players. Um, so those that might be kind of playing, you know, just for um, a day, you know, um, and that kind of is more akin to gambling in a lot of ways um, um, and kind of doing that kind of work. So we were kind of interested in those. So what we um, did is, so there was um, an online survey was the first data component. And so that got launched in, in 2000. 12, I believe, um, and it had both open and closed-ended questions. And that was just basically people were recruited for that part of the study through word of mouth, through um, I, I um, used social media to get people. Um, a, a local sports writer in Philadelphia wrote a um, newspaper article in the Philadelphia Inquirer about it, and that I got a huge number of um, respondents who read that article and then went and clicked on the survey and, and participated in the study. And so um, there were about 400 self-identified current or former fantasy sports players um, that took that survey. Um, and then, as Sarah mentioned, I had a question on the survey that said, hey, would you, if you're interested in talking more about your experiences as a fantasy sports player, please provide your contact info. And so then um, I did another, um, I did interviews with 47 fantasy sports players that were qualitative, semi-structured, in-depth interviews. Um, um, with that. So that's the, that's those two sources of data are the primary sources of data for the project. Um, then we also went to um, a fantasy sports trade conference um, where we observed kind of the industry professionals for a three day period and kind of learned more about the business end of fantasy sports. Um, and then the last part of the data was that we um, and did a content analysis of fantasy sports message boards and chat forums. And so we just kind of looked at some popular fantasy sports um, message boards and chat forums and did kind of an analysis of some of the things that were being said on those um, chat in those chat forums um, and message boards. And so that's um, kind of the the data for the project. Um, uh, and so. Uh, uh, and I'm trying to remember um, what else you asked about the data. Oh, just how that led you to, to separate or to find points of connection and points of difference between fantasy sports and, and quote unquote, I'm very, I'm very much with your quote unquote, Sarah, real sports. Yeah. 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 So, so then, you know, a lot of what we talked about um, in, in the, that's in the surveys, but also, especially in the interviews was discussing with them kind of how the respondents thought about kind of, again, real sport fandom um, quotes um, included versus um, uh, fantasy sports and their own experiences with grappling with that. Uh, and so, um, you know, certainly there's a lot of overlap in how those things operate. Um, and so, you know, there's certainly, you know, there's um, kind of, a, you know, and, and I should say that there's a lot of ways that traditional sports fandom or um, real sports fandom, whatever you want to call it, um, feeds into fantasy sports fandom and they kind of work off each other. So, you know, people who play fantasy sports, for instance, you know, other studies have found invest more in regular sports fandom, right? Watch more games, um, um, are more um, um, knowledgeable um, about um, certain aspects of the game, things like that. Um, but, you know, one of the key things that we say in the book um, 
that's different between the two types of fandom is that fantasy sports give you a measure of control or a feeling, I should say, of control over fandom and a way to personalize your fandom in ways that traditional fandom um, is more limited. So, you know, you, we, we, as we mentioned, like you can um, control who's on your fantasy teams in ways that you can't control who's on your favorite sports team in real life, right? You can decide who you want to have on that team, who you want to roster and who you're going to say is off limits that I will never have that person play for me. Right. Um, you can, um, um, so that kind of creates a level of what we call co-creation, you know, with the fantasy sports experience um, versus um, traditional sports. You um, also, when your team wins and obviously with traditional fandom, you can, you know, bask in the reflected glory of your team winning a game. Right. And, and brag about, Hey, my Eagles won this week. Um, and you can feel it part of that success to a, a to an extent, like you can say, yes, I um, am super excited. I'm a sports fan of that team and, and, um, and it reflects on me that they did well. But with fantasy sports, it reflects much more directly on you when your team wins because you put that team together in your mind. You, um, therefore, were the one who can, um, in some ways contributed to the success of that team. And so that's some of the kind of the differences we talk about between traditional sports fandom and fantasy sports fandom is that kind of level of kind of um, kind of personalization of your team and the feeling of control and how connected your success is to the athletes that you're rostering on the team. It feels much more direct in fantasy sports than, so, than it does in uh, regular sports fandom. And, uh, and I, I, I'm sorry, Sarah, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I actually wanted to throw something to you because I, I imagine given our conversation and your expertise in gender that maybe you were you were the one kind of driving the boat in the next chapter letting men be men and in that chapter control is kind of central and you all develop in that chapter as you're as you're unpacking the way in which fantasy sports are masculinist spaces you uh you develop a difference between hegemonic masculinity and uh, a term that i don't know if you all uh, invented but it seemed like you did uh, jock statsculinity. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I was so worried I was going to mispronounce that. Um, but I wonder, Sarah, if you can kind of uh, talk to us a little bit um, how how you how you kind of parsed out those differences and how fantasy sports work differently and against and with hegemonic masculinity. What's jock statsculinity? Um, right. Actually, it's a, a great question and um, really does follow on, on what I was going to say, even with regard to what Rebecca was saying about fandom in general, right? That, that, that really this is still defined in sort of highly masculinized ways, um, that success is about winning, it's about competition, right? That when, when it reflects on me, um, right, it's the winning I'm most interested in. Um, and so this is, you know, a segue really into this larger discussion about how masculinity operates, uh, in this context. And so certainly when we think about sports, right, we think about them as highly, not just male dominated, right. It's not just that men are more likely to, you know, engage in these contexts, but also that the very rules, uh, of, of the space and the expectations are based on that, you know, masculine norm. Um, 
And what we do in, in that chapter is really think about whether fantasy sports creates opportunities for new definitions of masculinity. And so, you know, hegemonic masculinity is this term coined by um, R.W. O'Connell uh, that really establishes a version of masculinity that is um, heterosexual, it's dominant, it's, it's about control and aggression and, and um, really a classic version of masculinity. And what we're interested in, what we find, right, in fantasy sports is that while that um, image or, or that version of masculinity still exists, there is this opportunity opened up for another um, version of a, a dominant form of masculinity, an alternative uh, masculinity, which we call jock statsculinity. Um, and, and, you know, I share concerns about not saying it correctly, even though we did actually create that term. Because, right, when you're when you're writing a book, you're not saying that word out loud uh, too terribly much. Um, and and juxtasculinity is this version of masculinity that has all those elements of competition and dominance um, and power that that uh, hegemonic or traditional masculinity has, but also has additional elements. Um, there's a sort of a boyishness, a, a juvenileness, right? Because many of these men are, are talking to us about um, living out boyhood dreams of, for example, becoming a general manager of a sports team. Um, uh, and then there's also these elements of sort of nerdiness. Uh, so there is a subset of, of men um, and players in general, but disproportionately men who are who are really interested in uh, the statistical elements of fantasy sports, right? They're pouring over the numbers. And what we argue is that fantasy sports does allow men who don't fit the conception of hegemonic masculinity to have a foothold in a legitimate, powerful, dominant form of masculinity in this realm, right? That includes men who maybe were never particularly good at sports, right? Didn't actually play, but can be very successful in fantasy sports, right? These are our, our, our stats guys. Um, and also men who uh, are older and are no longer able to play, uh, to, to play sports physically, but can continue to engage in, in the domain through fantasy sports. And then as I mean, I think you've both alluded to already there, even though there's this kind of strange paradox where fantasy sports made masculinity more accessible for, for certain kinds of people, it's not entirely open to everyone equally, is it? Oh, uh, right. Uh, no. And we talk a lot in the book about, you know, the ways in which, you know, not only is it Again, not as only is it just that the demographic profile is disproportionately white, um, middle class, upper middle class, right, professional occupations, men, um, but that that sets the rules, right, uh, of the game, and so um, it it tends to allow dominance and power among a particular subset, right, of men, and it's tied some of it to some of the things we talked about, like what jobs people do. Um, I don't know, if, if, Rebecca, if you have anything to add there. 
Yeah, I would just say that, you know, one of the things that was interesting that we talk about in the chapter where we focus on Jacques Stasculinity, now I can't say it either, yeah. um, <laughs> is this idea that for a subset of men, though, the, the fact that fantasy sports have exploded so much is actually a problem, right? Because they want to keep it more of an exclusive domain in which they can, again, um, demonstrate their uh, masculinity. That's not how they would say it, but that's what we would probably say in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we found is that the fact that um, there are more casual players than before, right? People who are not putting in a ton of time on this and that are just probably logging on once a week and using the projections the computer tells them on t terms of who to play and aren't doing their ex extra research um, or that aren't spending a lot of time or that people who are other types of people who are traditionally not playing like women um, are entering the space is seen as um, diluting the purity of the game, right? And is seen as a direct threat um, to some of the men. And again, it's not all of them. A lot of the men we talked to were very much some of those casual players themselves. But for some of the hardcore players, um, the, the opening up of the sport to other people and its um, growing popularity um, meant that it was something that they actually um, felt less invested in. It felt like it was um, that it was a problematic thing for how they viewed their own time and efforts in the sport. I have to say one of the parts of that chapter that I liked the most, because when I'm reading through it, I wasn't recognizing myself so much right away. But then I get to, to towards the end of the chapter, you talk about men who uh, seemingly kind of reject some of the some of the norms of, of this jock statsculinity, they kind of are like, oh, maybe, you know, this we're overly competitive, spend too much time on this, but that also that's kind of reifying a certain kind of masculine mastery, like, oh, I'm only going to spend a little bit of time on this. But that's also, you know, an, an, an archetype of a certain kind of masculinity. And I read that and I was like, oh, scene, there I am. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of men who like who would talk about like or that we talk about didn't do dominant dominance in the same way as other men or like we're self-deprecating. That was one thing we found like, you know, that some men would be instead of trash talking against others, they trash talk themselves, um, I guess, in the, you know, during matchups or something like that. Um, but exactly what you're saying is that was still kind of they were responding to what the dominant form of masculinity is in this space. And even when they were saying, I'm not like them, you know, or I'm a different kind of player. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that that's very accessible to people like me who are white, you know, upper middle class, heterosexual, cisgender, you know, it's a very, to reject all of the hegemonic masculinity is such an assertion of my masculinity in some ways. Right. I was like, Oh yeah, they got me. That's, that's definitely what I'm doing. <laughs> It was, but it, yeah. it was very illuminating and I had to take some moments for self-reflection. <laughs> yeah. And absolutely. And lots of researchers have talked about how, you know, this idea of hybrid masculinity, masculinities, where they are masculinities that bring in other elements of masculinities from that might be more sub, um, subordinated masculinities. But one thing that they find about um, those hybrid masculinities is that men who feel like they're able to take on non-hegemonic traits and and do it without penalty often again are come from privileged backgrounds or have privileged um, aspects of their kind of social location that allow them to break some of those rules without repercussions because they're hegemonic in so many other ways. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, of course, um, a book about gender and power in fantasy sports, you're not only looking at men, you also talk about women. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about why women play fantasy sports and how they respond to some of this gendered nature, um, this dominance, this control that, that you see in the game. Sarah, do you want to take that one or do you want oh, me to take that I, one? I, I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to give it a, a start and, uh, and I'll hop in or. Sure. Sounds great. <laughs> so, uh, um, so, so in terms of why women play fantasy sports, um, a lot of the reasons are very much similar to the reasons men play, you know, obviously it's not about proving their masculinity in some way, but it's because they're sports fanatics, right? You know, that they, um, for a, a large subset that they, you know, enjoyed sports, they played sports themselves. They wanted to have a, a, another way to engage with sports and fantasy sports offer that way, that, a way to do that. Um, something we talk about in, it's in another chapter of the book is that, um, or focus on another chapter of the book is how much women are playing also to connect to men in their lives. Right. So they're playing oftentimes, um, to connect to coworkers or to connect to um, their um, romantic partners, to their um, their male family members, um, their fathers, their sons, you know. So they're also using fantasy sports as another way to um, to interact with um, friends and family and coworkers and other people and to gain legitimacy with those groups. So that's kind of a lot of the you know reason why they play. Um, but, you know, one of the things we find, and, and Sarah alluded to this earlier, is that when you think about fantasy sports as a place where men and women can play side by side in the same leagues by the same rules, um, it's a really rarity in sporting context for that to be possible. Um, we sex segregate sports um, um, from when, you know, children are really young, right? Um, boys and girls, men and women do not play sports together. Typically, um, they often again play sports that um, on not only on separate teams, but that have different equipment and different rules and different um, things like that. And so fantasy sports offer a unique space where men and women can theoretically play side by side with the same rule structure. Um, and so, as Sarah mentioned, we were really kind of interested in whether or not that would help promote um, their ability to be seen as equals and to be, um, to be, um, and to be able to, um, gain the same sort of recognition for their efforts as men and to be able to experience fantasy sports in a way that was gender neutral, let's say. And so, you know, the punchline that we find is that in general, they're still outsiders in a lot of ways, um, that, um, that, even when they play in the same leagues as men, um, that men oftentimes look at them with, skepticism, um, see them as less competent, you know, um, assume that they're going to be less knowledgeable about sports, that they're going to be an easy win, that they're, um, when women are successful, uh, we heard from our um, women respondents that they would hear from people in their league that because of the virtual nature of the um, sport, of the sport, that men must have been really running their teams, um, or that we heard other sorts of kind of 
both heteronormative and gendered kind of assumptions about women that they were drafting players based on how cute they were or whether they um, looked good in their uniforms and not based on kind of their knowledge. And so, you know, um, women faced a lot of that kind of thing, this kind of questioning about um, their competency, questioning about their interests, questioning about their experience in sports and what and whether that made them able to be successful in this fantasy sport realm. So um, we did also hear some other stuff that was we would classify as much more hostile, misogynistic kind of environments that women were in, right? So sometimes they were um, um, trash-talking or um, sexist, um, homophobic language um, in leagues that pushed women out of them or that they felt like they were being treated in really hostile ways that um, – um, by other people in their leagues. Um, we didn't hear too much of that. Um, we, there were, um, and we talk about that in the book is largely because people were largely playing with their friends and family where you would hope that they wouldn't be experiencing really hostile sexism and, um, and you know, um, in those environments. Um, but we did see a lot of this other sorts of kind of questioning of competency. Um, and then, you know, that leads women to respond, we say, in a lot of different ways. Like some of them are pretty... Um, proactive and kind of shut people down and say, you know, I'm just as competent as you. Um, and I don't, and my gender has nothing to do with it or something like that. Others, um, frame themselves as the exception to the rule. And we talk about this as kind of partially transformative in terms of gender relations, but also, um, reproductive in the sense that by positioning yourself as kind of the anomaly or the, um, in terms of your gender or saying, you know, I'm not a typical girl. That's why I'm good at fantasy. You're both kind of reinforcing the idea that women in general aren't good at sports or knowledgeable sports while at the same time asserting that your own competence, um, some women retreated from leagues that were hostile and joined all women leagues, um, because they found that the leagues that they were in with men were not, um, um, receptive to their presence. So we see like a kind of a whole range of um, activities that women did to try and um, better their playing experience um, while they were in fantasy sports. Some enlisted men as allies. I should mention that too, right? That they would have men who would, if something was happening in the discussion um, message forums that was offensive, the men would go on and say, hey guys, this is not appropriate. We don't do that here. Um, and so that was another strategy some of the women did to try and cope with the um, the aspects of their um, playing experience that were more negative um, and, and sexist. And if I can hop in here, um, you know, I think, well, first I want to hop in because Rebecca knows I can't get through any conversation about our book without talking about Jennifer, who's one of my favorite uh, people in the book, uh, one of the favorite participants. And she has this great line, right. About the, it's tied to the way in which um, men are often enlisted in some ways to, to establish legitimacy, um, for women, uh, and, and which we call a sort of mediated agency. Uh, and, and she just goes on and she's like, look, you know, I'm a feminist. I went to an all women's college. And so I said to my boyfriend, you need to tell them that they can't talk like that or some very close version of that. Right. And so she really is establishing herself as, as, this different kind of, of woman, right, who's going to speak up for herself, but then in order to do so in this highly masculinized context, she sort of relies on um, on that support. Um, and I want to make a point too, uh, Keith, because you brought it up when you were talking about you know men's experiences that 
often the women, right, the women had these options, I would say, with regard to how they would exercise agency, um, in, especially the ones who really were sort of included, right? They, they, they really were exercising some agency we might call transformative. That is, they were establishing themselves as women, um, but also as highly competent. They were able to do that because they were white, they were, you know, upper middle class. Um, they sort of had all the other dimensions of privilege. The only way in which they were outsider, outsiders were that they were women. Um, and so, again, we see that thread of, of privilege sort of running through um, what we're hearing from the men and the women. Yeah, I, I was um, struck in your next chapter, your, your 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 fifth chapter on the social aspects of fantasy, when you talk about a bit about how women and men are able to acquire or use social capital and cultural capital in different ways. Um, that so much of what so much of the production of this kind of social space is actually, as you all are, have brought up already today about how the leagues themselves form. So I wonder if you can talk, and, 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 and I guess how I was connecting that is because so many leagues form among, among male friends and then maybe one or two women uh, are able to join um, or family members and one or two women are able to join and then women have to produce these all-female leagues in order to stay, to protect themselves from some of the more misogynistic or sexist aspects of it. Uh, so there's all this, even as there's kind of this gender, this gender um, discourse at work, there's also kind of structural elements, social elements at work as well. So I wonder if you all could talk a little bit about what are the social, uh, as you call them, the, the social aspects of fantasy are huge. What are some of these social aspects of fantasy sports that kind of undergird this, this, this um, gendered contestation that we see at work? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start this one at least. Um, and so what what we heard a lot from men and from women uh, was that fantasy sports was a place where they could connect with others. Um, and this is really important. There are important gender dynamics here. Um, what's important to understand is that the way we conceive of sort of traditional masculinity um, does not really allow a lot of space for these sort of deep emotional connections among men, right? Uh, hegemonic masculinity in particular, you know, heterosexuality is this big element to it, right? So, so that heteronormativity and homophobia are in many ways uh, woven into uh, men's sense of themselves and men's, importantly, men's relationships with other men. Um, and so fantasy sports becomes this sort of safe place and sports in general, right, uh, where men can connect with one another. Um, and because fantasy sports doesn't require physical proximity, uh, this is especially useful and important as, you know, we experience more geographic mobility. People move away from their families, from from their friends. Right. Uh, and so this was a place where they were able to connect with old friends, maybe people they never really saw or saw very rarely. Um, so a lot about, you know, groups of college roommates. I mean, Rebecca and I have, have been contacted by readers who are, you know, college roommates who um, 
have stayed connected over decades through their fantasy sports leagues. Um, and so that's a really important aspect for understanding, right? This creates kind of this safe environment um, where men kind of interweave conversations about their fantasy sports teams and even some of the trash talking and, and all of that that is integral to these things um, with sort of deep conversations uh, about their lives. Um, although they admit to kind of knowing less about um, some of the men with whom they engage uh, in fantasy sports than they do about their detailed roster choices um, at any given time. Women too are using it to connect, although again, establishing this as a highly masculine and male dominated space, women are often doing that to connect, uh, as I believe Rebecca alluded to earlier, to connect with the men in their lives. Um, so, you know, they might do this with their boyfriend or husband um, or, uh, you know, their father as a way to, to maintain that sort of connection. So those are some of the kind of structural underpinnings of the kind of bonding that, that happens in fantasy sports. Yeah. And I will just add one more thing about the kind of the interesting gender dynamics we've found that kind of crosses over into the workplace is that a lot of the women did talk about um, using fantasy sports and involvement as kind of cultural currency to be able to talk to coworkers um, that are men, men coworkers, a water cooler talk, or to kind of be involved with men at the workplace in ways that they thought actually could be beneficial for their careers, um, that it would actually um, help build social capital in kind of workplaces, but also give them some legitimacy because they could kind of um, feel confident to walk up to them and talk about sports and about their fantasy league and the player they were sweating on Sunday because um, they needed a certain number of fantasy for sport, fantasy points from that person. And so it was, um, you know, certainly providing what we might say is kind of a, a, a way to bond with men, but it was also helping them leverage potentially better opportunities or um, leverage um, more legitimacy and respect among male coworkers. And, and that was something that certainly um, men talked about too, is that they use fantasy sports as a way to connect um, with men in workplaces. But for women, it was really something we heard a lot of um, because um, a lot of kind of what's valued as water cooler talk in workplaces is kind of masculine and talking about your um, things that are seen as feminine, like, you know, I'm trying to think of something stereotypical, like um, shopping for shoes. I don't know. That's probably the worst example ever. <laughs> but yeah, that sort of thing is not valued. But here that they can go into the workplace and feel like, OK, I can talk with these guys that I'm working with and I can um, have value in those conversations. Yeah, I thought that that was um, that this chapter's discussion of both the social and cultural capital and kind of how they operated differently for men and women was really fascinating. I, I was especially struck by the, the by the observation that you all make that in terms of the production of social capital, both men and women are targeting men like they're both aiming to build these connections with men because men in terms of privilege are situated at the kind of privileged space within this social space. So they, they're the gatekeepers often of who gets let into the league. They're the people who are presumed to have some kind of expertise. And then that's why they, men don't necessarily need to use it to acquire cultural capital because they're presumed to already have it, which is something that I've faced here when moving to Australia is 
I am in a quote unquote tipping competition, which is somewhat similar to fantasy competition um, in, in Australia. And people just assume that I know about Australian sports. And I'm like, I don't know <laughs> anything about Australian sports. Um, but I happened to come in second place this year and people were like, oh, yeah, the sports historian, of course, he must. And I'm like, <laughs> I literally was just, you know, like going by the stats provided by the by the fantasy game website we were playing on, you know, it's not exactly yeah, but. Well, and what, what you just highlighted is sort of a a, a similar dynamic uh, to the, the way in which kind of outsiders get treated, right? Like your success is sort of like, not about your, uh, your skills. It's like, well, that's his, that's what he does for a living. Right. I mean, we we saw this in our own, in our own research, right. More in terms of how women's success was often interpreted, right. Women in that case as the outsiders, like, Oh, you know, dismissed. And, um, so there's some, some parallels there, right. Whenever we're talking about, um, people in differing power, uh, situations, insiders and outsiders, effectively. Now, um, before everyone thinks that, you know, this is just a complicated gender story, uh, there's also negative ramifications to some of this, too. And in your last um, kind of body chapter, Going Overboard, you talk about people who go overboard with fantasy sports and the disproportionate impacts faced by both men and women. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about you know, the guy who plays fantasy 20 hours a week, like what, what's happening to people who go overboard with fantasy? Um, yeah, so I'll start here and Sarah, you can jump in and correct whatever I get wrong, you know, uh, but, you know, so one of the things about fantasy sports is that we talk about in that chapter is that it obviously takes time, right? So you have the people, certain time investment, and we have a limited amount of time in a day, right? So you have to, um, unless you're a very successful multitasker where you can do fantasy sports at the same time as doing other sort of productive activities, it, time in fantasy sports means time and attention, at least, away from other activities. Um, the second component besides time is that there's this emotional absorption with fantasy sports um, where you, um, be, and this is somewhat related to what we talked about earlier in terms of the connection you feel to the success or failure of your team is personalized in so so many ways that you feel like you, it's your efforts that are resulting in that win or loss in a in a pretty direct way. And so those um, highs and lows that come with um, fantasy sports um, um, are also um, for different players. Um, are, you know, are going to kind of potentially bleed into other aspects of their lives in terms of how they emotionally deal with that fallout or the successes. And so what we find is in terms of the time commitment that um, a lot, some, some of the fantasy sports players will just talk about, well, um, I, I don't have time for kind of what we might say are civic activities. Like I could be doing something more productive, like volunteering at the local soup kitchen, but instead I'm playing fantasy sports. Um, what we heard more commonly is people saying that some household activities um, were being sacrificed for fantasy sports, right? So that their house might be dirtier or they might um, not do some of those projects with the kids um, that they needed to have done um, because fantasy sports were taking up their um, time and attention, um, especially during football season. We're talking about fantasy football, which is the largest fantasy sport in um, the United States um, on those Sundays where you're just watching the games and seeing how things are going. Um, 
so that's some of the time dimensions, but the kind of emotional dimensions are there too, where um, some of them would say I'm lashing out at my family um, because of um, what happened today during um, fantasy sports, or I am, um, my mood is ruined for a day or a week after my, I have a rough loss. Um, and the thing we find in terms of the time and absorption and those kind of more extreme effects, let's say, is that they were almost exclusively among men in the sample. Um, certainly women said I got frustrated when my team lost or I was angry or I was, um, I was uh, uh, pissed off for the day or something like that. But they usually talked about these sorts of um, highs and lows as kind of quickly ending, right? That it would be maybe a few hours and then they'd get over it. Um, and they also um, didn't invest as much time into the fantasy sports as the men. And But for the men, there were this subset. And again, it was not all of them, but there was a subset where it was actually harming relationships. The trash talking was another thing some of the men talked about is going too far, right? So most of the time they talked about trash talking as a way to show affection and to get close to other men. But sometimes they'd say it gets too personal. And I've gotten in fights, um, physical fights with other people after going too far in my trash talking over fantasy sports. Um, and so that's kind of some of the stuff we talk about in that section. And I don't know, Sarah, do you want to talk about kind of the workplace dynamics of playing fantasy sports? Yeah. Um, I was thinking it's tied back, you know, Keith, to your question, even about how how the the bonding, what we, we, we call the more positive side of the social connection that happens through fantasy sports, how that uh, is shaped by the structures that people find themselves in. And so we heard a lot from folks um about the way in which their work either was or more commonly was not really impacted by fantasy sports. And that really hinges on being in the type of occupation that um, uh, has you sitting in front of a computer all day, uh, is not highly regulated, right? Many professional workers, you know, your, your boss isn't right over your shoulder all day, uh, you know, counting widgets or uh, that you're producing or, or whatever the case may be. And so while these folks recognized the, the time investment that it was, they, they were able to kind of rationalize it or dismiss it by saying like, look, you know, sometimes like a trade's got to happen and it can't wait till I get out of work. And that's okay because I was able to sort of um, do this fantasy activity while I was also uh, at work. Um, and, you know, many of them, again, had the type of, of job that they wasn't necessarily bounded by a nine to five clock. And they would just say, well, I'll just I'll finish up my work after. Right. Because this has to be done, that their, their, their time was more flexible, uh, even if there's only 24 hours a day. And that's very different than someone who does not have access to technology uh, during the day, uh, who is highly surveilled. Um, and so this is, again, where class matters for how they're able to integrate this piece and, and the extent to which the time commitment, at least, uh, impacts their work lives. Yeah, this this chapter for me was, I mean, it really hit home how the gendered impacts of fantasy sports can be felt and the differentially and how the class impacts can be felt differentially. And there was one point where one of your interlocutors just said, you know, for the past seven years, I've spent every Sunday, like just plopped down on the couch the whole day. And I think about all the stuff I've missed doing with my family, my kids, 
And I was reading this like, oh my God, like what, this guy's gonna have, like, gonna have a breakdown after writing this down because it's this realization must be just huge. But it, it like uh, the the positive and the net. You guys, we both bring out very clearly the positives and the negatives. And I I think um, this is just a really rich book. And I I, I want to say thank you for letting me um, read it and talk to you all about it. Um, the last question, uh, we just have time for one more question. The last question I always ask people is, um, what can we look forward to seeing, uh, from you next? It doesn't have to be related to sports or sports studies, and maybe it's not a book. It's maybe it's another project, but I'm interested in, in what you're both working on now, what you have uh, moving forward. So, um, what can we look forward to seeing, uh, from you next? Um, so, you know, I, I, um, started a study um, that unfortunately overlapped with the um, start of the pandemic. Um, and uh, that was kind of looking at kind of leisure activities among poor families and how they and how um, organizations and spaces in um, low income communities might act as kind of might act as resource brokers and 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 provide opportunities for people to um, get resources through leisure activities. Um, so that's what I started, but that, to be honest, died <laughs> a a sad death um, in the middle of the pandemic when my interviews got cut short. Um, so that was what I was working on. Um, I will say Sarah and I have been talking about moving into doing some research actually on collegiate sports. Um, I don't know, Sarah, do you want to talk about that? <laughs> um, yeah, a, a bit. So, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the ideas that Rebecca and I have have tossed around, um, both being at institutions um, with uh, pretty significant sports cultures and, and a pretty um, good number of, of sports and, and student athletes, but yet at very different types of institutions. So Rebecca is at um, a, a private liberal arts school. I'm at a large public university uh, that some folks might know of in for our football team, although sadly, maybe not so much this year. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, and how our students sort of understand their sports participation, um, how they do or don't find belonging um, in that, uh, what are the sort of class and race and gender dynamics of that um, across institutional types. Did that capture it appropriately, Rebecca? I think so. Yeah, it sounded great. <laughs> and, uh, and I think for me, um, because a lot of my work has moved into kind of uh, less of a faculty realm and more of an administrative realm. And so I do think a lot about the student experience. It's been a nice way to think about blending um, my research with that, right? Thinking about how our students are actually experiencing um, being student athletes, like what that means across institutional contexts. Well, that sounds really fascinating and very um, apropos of the current moment we find our, ourselves in when the notion of student athlete is is becoming further complicated by the NIT and um, the the further um, separation of those terms in some places. I don't know how it is in Clemson. I I did my undergraduate at Ohio State, so um, (laughs) I'm somewhat familiar with the big college football experience. And I have to admit, I've been falling out of love with college football lately in some ways, um, just troubled by the it's increasing um, 
corporatization, professionalization, mistreatment of some of the students, but I'll be looking forward to reading about how students themselves are experiencing it in the interviews that you all will do, we'll be doing. So I'm, I'm already ready to, to have you back on. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, uh, Rebecca and Sarah. We, I've been talking today with uh, Rebecca Kassane and Sarah Winslow. Rebecca is a professor of sociology at Lafayette College, and Sarah is a professor of sociology at Clemson, as you just mentioned. And they're the authors of just this, as I say, a fantastic book, uh, Whose Game, Gender, and Power in Fantasy Sports. If you want to know more about fantasy sports uh, and and um, the, the positives and negatives and how those different um, positives and negatives are felt uh, in a kind of gender, social uh, class way, this is the book for you. Thank you, Rebecca and Sarah, for coming on to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You have been listening to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm coming to you from Macquarie University. Thank you very much for listening.